Hello, and welcome to Mixed DNA Podcast, the podcast with two mixed race hosts talking about any and everything. Each week, we pick a topic, do some research, throw in our own thoughts, opinions, and personal experiences when necessary, and put everything together to share with all of you. I'm Melissa. And I'm Vanessa. Today's episode, episode number 65, is Mixed DNA and Black Women in Canadian History. In honor of Black History Month and the fact that we are Canadian, we thought there would be no better time to fuse these two together. As per their website, each February, the City of Toronto is proud to produce and support events and exhibits during Black History Month, inviting the public to explore and celebrate the heritage, traditions of Black Canadians. In 1979, Toronto became the first municipality in Canada to proclaim Black History Month through the efforts of many individuals and organizations such as the Ontario Black History Society. Black History Month is an opportunity for the City of Toronto to recognize the past and present contributions that Black Canadians make to the life of Toronto in such areas as education, medicine, art, culture, public service, economic development, politics, and human rights. All exhibits provided by the city are free unless otherwise noted. This year, Toronto held, or will still be holding, a Bob Marley skating at Nathan Phillips Square, various author talks and artists meet and greets, musical performances, entrepreneur markets, film screenings, and various exhibits like Black Women in Leadership, Dismantle Art Exhibit, Identity Quilt Making, and a glimpse of Black life in Victorian Toronto. A full list of events for Toronto can be found on their website. The Black Women in Leadership exhibit is one event this month that really stood out to me and has become the basis for today's episode. The exhibit is a partnership between the City of Toronto Archives and BAND, which is Black Artist Networks in Dialogue Gallery and Cultural Centre. It is an exhibition featuring portraits of 40 Black women leaders by four Toronto-based visual artists, Janice Reed, Layla JT, John Black, and Patricia Ella. The exhibit highlights contributions from Black women leaders across various sectors, including arts and culture, business, health and wellness, and activism. The women that are featured have led and continue to inspire change in their communities and have paved the way for the next generation of Black women leaders through community involvement and advocacy. The exhibition is free and will run until August 2023 at the Toronto Archives, which is located at 255 Spadina Road. It is open to the public weekdays from 9 to 4. As much as we would like to check out this exhibit, the hours are horrific for two full-time working mothers. We do have until August, so we'll try, but no promises. Therefore, our contribution to Black History Month this February is to feature and to highlight some extraordinary Black Canadian women from Canadian history. And we'll tell you now that Canada has some very impressive Black women in its past, as well as its present and its future. We're going to start with Marianne Shad Carey, who was an American-Canadian born in 1823. Before we continue with her story, if you're like us, it's sometimes tiring to see and hear the slave story used as entertainment time and time again. However, as Canadians, a lot of the stories we hear are solely American, and we wanted to share stories for Black History Month that are closer to home for us. So bear with us here, because slavery wasn't just an American problem. Back to Mary Ann Shad. She was born to free parents in Delaware, a state slave, and she was the eldest of 13 children. She was educated by Quakers and later taught throughout the northeastern United States, including New York City. Following in the footsteps of her activist parents, 
whose home was used as a safe house on the Underground Railroad, Mary Ann Shad pursued community activism and settled in Canada. In September 1851, Shad attended the first North American Convention of Colored Freemen held outside of the United States. The event was attended by hundreds of black community leaders from all over Canada, the United States, and England. Many delegates encouraged enslaved Americans and refugees from enslavement to enter Canada because the year prior, the United States had passed the Fugitive Slave Act, which allowed slave owners to recapture escaped enslaved persons in the states where enslavement had been abolished. Shad met Henry and Mary Bibb at the convention. They were publishers of the newspaper Voice of the Fugitive, and they convinced her to take a teaching position near their home in what is now Windsor, Ontario. Shad settled in Windsor and set up a racially integrated school open to all who could afford to attend, as education was not publicly provided at the time. To promote emigration to Canada, Shad publicized the successes of black persons living in freedom in Canada through The Provincial Freeman, a weekly newspaper first printed on March 24, 1853. This made Marianne Shad the first black woman in North America to publish a newspaper and one of the first female journalists in Canada. The paper featured prominent anti-slavery authors and even promoted women's rights. The paper's motto was, Self-Reliance is the True Road to Independence. The paper was published from 1853 to 1857 from Windsor, Toronto, and Chatham. Shad did not list her own name on the paper's masthead or take credit for any articles she had written, as she wanted to conceal the paper's female editorship. Unfortunately, by the 1860s, the paper had succumbed to financial pressure and it folded. Years later, after returning to the U.S., Shad pursued law studies at Howard University and in 1883 became one of the first black women to complete a law degree. In 1994, Marianne Shad was recognized as a person of historic significance by the Government of Canada. Next up, Miss Mayru Sarsfield, whose remarkable life took her from the newsrooms of Montreal to the Canadian bestsellers list. Sarsfield was born in Montreal, Quebec, Canada in 1930, 10 years before women in Quebec could even vote. As an adult, she traveled the world as a diplomat and storyteller, breaking ground along the way. When she passed away in 2013, her obituary headline was A Mighty Tree Has Fallen, and this encapsulated her passion and her impressive life. Not only was she a writer and published author, she was a diplomat, a television host, and a community activist. She completed her post-secondary education in Canada, New York, and Ghana. She was a research writer for CBC TV's The New Generation for four years and was an exhibit coordinator at Expo 67 in Montreal. She developed a theme for Canada's Pavilion at Expo 70 in Osaka, Japan, and co-hosted Hourglass, which aired on CBC TV. In 1971, she joined the Department of External Affairs as an information officer. She served as Senior Information Officer with the United Nations Environment Program in Nairobi, Washington, and New York, before returning to Canada in 1984 to become the Director of Development Communicators, Inc., and co-host of the Seniors Report and Literari on PBS. Sarsfield was also the first Black woman to serve on CBC's Board of Governors. Every year on October 22nd, citizens of Cleveland, Ohio, celebrate May Ruth Sarsfield Day for her significant work with the United Nations when she developed a global environmental campaign for every child a tree. 
Sarsfield's second novel, No Crystal Stare, was set in Montreal during World War II and tells the story of the harsh life blacks in Little Burgundy faced. Two themes run through the novel, passing as white and surviving as black. The novel recounts a story about the desire to survive all while depicting the cosmopolitan Montreal of the 1940s, a city inhabited by jazz musicians, socialites, artists, and gangsters. The novel was included in the CBC Canada Reads series in 2005. The formal synopsis is, Marion Willow is a young widow trying to raise three daughters on her own. She's black, but must pass for white in order to earn a decent living. She has her eye on a handsome railway porter, but she also has a rival for his affections, her neighbor, Tori Delacourt, an American expatriate. Set in Montreal in the mid-1940s, No Crystal Stare is a compelling story of ambition, love, and a tightly-knit black community that must contend with the subtle racism of Canadian society. Kathleen Livingstone, known as K. Nee Jenkins, was born in London, Ontario in 1918. From a young age, she developed an interest in the performing arts, studying music in Toronto and Ottawa. In 1942, her and her husband George moved to Toronto, where they raised five children. But she wasn't confined to the family home. She maintained a brilliant acting career and was called one of Canada's leading black actresses. During this time, she performed both amateur and professional productions and had a career in radio. In the 1950s, as the civil rights movement gained momentum in the United States, her thirst for action and change transformed her everyday social life into mutual aid and started the Canadian Negro Women's Association. She served as its first president from 1951 to 1953 and remained an active member afterward. She provided the organization's vision to promote the pride and contributions of the Afro-Canadian community. Through this organization, Livingstone initiated and organized the first National Congress of Black Women, held in Toronto in April 1973. This filled a void on the political spectrum as Afro-Canadian women's concerns were lesser priorities for both Black civil rights movement and the second-wave feminists. Given the event's success, other conventions across the country followed which led to the creation of the permanent organization that exists today. Livingstone devoted a great deal of her life and energy to social activism and organizing. Her tireless work to encourage a national discussion around the position of racialized people in society, particularly black women, led Livingstone to coin the term visible minority in 1975. While working for the Privy Council of Canada, her work involved traveling the country and speaking with women's groups in preparation for a national conference on racialized communities in Canada. It is believed she coined visible minority while working on this project. At the time, the turn became an organizing tool that members could use to challenge the unfair institutional practices in education, policing, and immigration. Although the term has become a contentious issue today, at the time it was seen as a radical descriptor of their location in Canadian society. Livingstone died suddenly while planning the conference on July 25, 1975, leaving everyone in shock. After her death, publisher Carrie Best, who we'll talk about later, established the Key Livingstone's Visible Minority Women's Society, which provided scholarships to young women. Livingstone was designated a person of national historic significance by the Canadian government in 2011, and in November 2017, the Historic Sites and Monument Board of Canada erected a plaque 
dedicated to her at Bedford Park Avenue, a street where she lived a long time. And in 2018, for Black History Month, Canada Post released a stamp depicting Kay Livingstone. Next up, the only person of color to be featured on Canadian currency, Viola Desmond. Viola Davis, and no, not that Viola Davis, this Viola's name before marriage was Viola Davis, was born on July 6, 1914, in Halifax, Nova Scotia, one of ten children to James Albert and Gwendolyn Davis. Viola's father was a barber while she was growing up, and she noted the absence of professional hair and skin products for black women, and she set her sights on addressing this issue. Being of African descent, she wasn't allowed to train as a beautician in Halifax, so she left home and received training in Montreal, Atlantic City, and one of Madame C.J. Walker's beauty schools in New York. After she finished her training, she returned to Halifax and started her own hair salon called Vi Studio of Beauty Culture. She opened the Desmond School of Beauty Culture so that black women should not have to travel as far as she did to receive training. The school catered to women from Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, and Quebec. Each year, approximately 15 women graduate from the school, all of whom have been denied admission to whites-only training schools. Desmond also started her own line of beauty products, Vi's Beauty Products, which she marketed and sold herself. Eventually, Viola and her husband, Jack Desmond, would combine their barbershop and hairdressing salon into one enterprise on Gottingen Street. On November 8, 1946, while on a business trip to Sydney, Nova Scotia, her car broke down and she had to wait a whole day before parts would arrive. To pass the time waiting, she went to the movies at the Roseland Film Theatre. At the time, there were no segregation laws for movie theatres in Nova Scotia, but this specific theatre in New Glasgow, Nova Scotia, had a policy that the main floor seats were for white patrons. This was a discriminatory practice permitted in all Canadian provinces, and signage wasn't always viewable to patrons. Viola was sold a ticket to the balcony, and unaware of the segregation, she went to sit on the floor section to be close to the screen because she was nearsighted. She was asked to move, and she refused to move, and requested to exchange her ticket to a floor seat for an additional cost. Her request was refused and she was forcefully removed from the theater, which caused her a hip injury. She was arrested and spent 12 hours in jail and had to pay a $26 fine for tax evasion, as the tax on the balcony price was two cents and the tax on floor seats was three cents. She was convicted of depriving the government of one cent in taxes. Desmond fought the charge in court. She hired a lawyer, Frederick William Bissett, who represented her in the criminal trials and attempted, unsuccessfully, to file a lawsuit against the Roseland Theatre. The government insisted on arguing the case as a tax evasion. The statute used to convict Desmond contained no explicitly racist or discriminatory language. The case was dismissed. After the trial, her marriage ended and she closed her business and moved to Montreal to enroll in business college. She eventually settled in New York, where she died from gastrointestinal bleeding on February 7, 1965, at the age of 50. She is buried at Camp Hill Cemetery in Halifax, Nova Scotia. Desmond is often compared to Rosa Parks, given that they both challenged racism by refusing to vacate seats in whites-only sections, and each contributed to the rise of the civil rights movement in their respective countries. Desmond was pardoned in 2010 when she had already been dead for 45 years. 
Next up is Carrie Mae Best, a human rights activist, author, journalist, publisher, and broadcaster. She was born March 4, 1903 in New Glasgow, Nova Scotia, and died July 24, 2001. Sparked by incidents of racial discrimination, Best became a civil rights activist and the co-founder of The Clarion, one of the first newspapers in Nova Scotia owned and published by Black Canadians. She used this platform to advocate for Black rights. As editor, she publicly supported Viola Desmond in her case against the Roseland Theatre. In 1941, Carrie Best heard that several high school girls had been removed by force from the Roseland Theatre. Yes, the same one we mentioned. The black teens had attempted to sit in the whites-only section. Best was outraged and argued the racist policy to the theatre's owner in person and by letter. She decided it was time to go to the movies herself. A few days later, Best and her son Calbert attempted to purchase tickets for the main floor of the theatre. The cashier issued the tickets for the balcony anyway. Best left the tickets on the counter, and her and her son walked into the auditorium. The assistant manager demanded that they leave, but they refused, and the police were called. They were hoisted from their seats and were charged with disturbing the peace, convicted, and fined. Best had what she needed. She could now take legal action against the theater. Filing a lawsuit that specified racial discrimination, Best claimed damages for assault and battery, damage to her coat, and breach of contract. The theater company claimed that Best and her son were trespassers without tickets. The case was heard on May 12, 1942, four years before the Viola Desmond story we shared, and the case failed. The theater won on the basis that it was their right to exclude anyone, which beat out the bigger issue of racism. The judge not only ignored the blatant discrimination, but also ordered Best to pay the defendant's costs. After losing the case is when she decided to start the newspaper, The Clarion. The paper reported on sports, news, social activities, and other significant events. Incorporated in 1947, the paper placed an emphasis on better race relations, and for a decade, The Clarion covered many important issues and advocated for black rights. In 1956, it was renamed The Negro Citizen and began national circulation. While operating the newspaper, Best took another challenge. She was unable to find radio programming that she liked, so she started broadcasting her own, kind of like a modern-day podcaster. Her program was called The Quiet Corner. It debuted in 1952. Between classical and religious music segments, Best entertained listeners by reading the works of American poet Henry Wadsworth Longfellow and African-American poet Paul Lawrence Dunbar. For 12 years, the show filled a need for listeners on four radio stations in the Maritimes. Next up is Violet King, who was born October 18, 1929, in Calgary, Alberta. King's paternal grandparents moved to Keystone, now Breton, Alberta from Oklahoma in 1911. They were drawn to Canada after discovering the federal government's campaign to entice American farmers to immigrate to the country. However, the Canadian government didn't expect black farmers to answer this call. The government quickly moved to discourage black immigration and thus limited the total number to black immigrants to the Canadian prairies to only about 1,000 by 1912. King's parents, John and Stella, moved to Calgary in 1919 and lived in the community of Hillhurst Sunnyside. They worked as a sleeping car porter 
and as a seamstress, respectively. They had three children besides Violet, Vern, Lucielle, and Ted. From a young age, Violet knew she wanted to pursue a legal career. Her grade 12 yearbook caption read, Violet wants to be a criminal lawyer. She attended the University of Alberta in 1948, and to help finance her studies, she taught piano in Edmonton. Out of the 142 students, King was one of only three women in the Faculty of Law. During her time at the university, she was a member of the Blue Stocking Club, vice president of the Student Union, and was a representative of the Students' Union to the National Federation of Canadian University Students. During her undergraduate studies, she was selected as class historian and served as the 1952 Alberta representative to the International Student Services Conference held in Hamilton, Ontario. King obtained her Bachelor of Arts degree in 1952 and received her LLB degree in 1953. She was the first black person to graduate law school in Alberta and the only woman in her graduating year. Following graduation, King articled at a Calgary firm where she recalls working on five murder trials during her articling time, a substantial caseload. King was called to the Alberta Bar on June 2, 1954, and became the first black female lawyer to practice law in Canada. Her admission made headlines in several local newspapers. Two Calgary publications described it as a milestone in Canadian history. It would be another 10 years before Lionel Jones was admitted to the Alberta Bar the second black lawyer in the province. King practiced law in Calgary for several years and spoke publicly about racism in the workplace. At a speech made at a sorority banquet in Calgary in 1955, she remarked, It's too bad that a Japanese, Chinese, or colored girl has to outshine others to secure a position. She also described the challenges women had faced in the workforce to that point and expressed hope that in her future, greater focus would be placed on a person's ability and less on their race or gender. King would eventually move to Ottawa to work with the Federal Department of Citizenship and Immigration. She shattered glass ceilings and broke down color barriers to pave the way for future generations. Her hard work and drive to excel in all facets of her career are an inspiration for those who aspire to do great things in their field. Another Black Canadian female pioneer was Jennifer Hodge De Silva. She was a documentary filmmaker born January 28, 1951, in Montreal, Quebec. Her mother was Mayru Sansfield, who was the first woman we featured at the top of this episode. Due to who her mother was, Jennifer was exposed to arts and culture throughout her childhood, and she completed high school in Switzerland, which resulted in her cosmopolitan view of the world. She also became fluent in French, German, and proficient in Italian. When she returned to Canada, she attended Glendon College at York University in Toronto, where she earned her Bachelor of Arts Honours in Fine Arts in 1974. Afterwards, she apprenticed at the National Film Board in Montreal before returning to Toronto to attend Ryerson University, which is now the Toronto Metropolitan University, where she received a Bachelor of Applied Television Arts in 1979. Later that year, she directed a short film, Canada Vignettes, Helen Law. The film is a portrait of a Chinese immigrant and her first-generation Canadian son. While still a student, Hodge served as assistant director and associate producer on the film Fields of Endless Day in 1978. This was one of the first Canadian films to significantly chronicle nearly 400 years of African-Canadian history. 
1982, Hodge married fellow filmmaker Paul De Silva, and together they founded the production company Gen Films. Through the company, they produced a vast array of work, including a profile of mask artist Joe David called Joe David, Spirit of the Mask, The Edenshaw Legacy, which showcases the work of Haida artists, Charles Edenshaw, and the TV series Inside Stories, which chronicles the experiences of ethnically diverse residents of Toronto. Gen Films also created the acclaimed series Neighbourhoods, that examines the history and character of different communities across Canada, like Kensington Market. Her signature film was 1983's Home Feeling, Struggle for a Community, which she co-directed. The film explores the troubled relationship between Toronto Police Services and the residents of the city's largely ethnically diverse Jane and Finch district. The complex portrayal of the overall situation, including views of both the police and the residents, remains relevant even to this day. Home Feeling is recognized as a liberal realist documentary that gives voice to an otherwise marginalized community. Hodge De Silva died of cancer at the age of 38 in the same hospital where she was born, Montreal's Royal Victoria. A biographical documentary on her life and work, Jennifer Hodge, The Glory and the Pain, was released in 1992. It features recollections from those closest to her. There are so many women we could feature for today's episode. We could literally go on and on and on. The rich history of Canada is full of black female excellence, if you know where to look. And it's really not that hard to see. We're just going to do one more profile before we wrap today's episode, and that profile is for Angela James. Angela James was born December 22, 1964, in Toronto, Ontario and is a Canadian former ice hockey player who played at the highest level of senior hockey between 1980 and 2000. James was the daughter of Donna Barato, a white Canadian from Toronto, and Leo James, a black American from Mississippi, who came to Canada to escape racial segregation. James and two half-sisters were raised by their mother with the help of government assistance. They lived in subsidized housing in Toronto neighborhood Flemington Park. Although her father did not provide financial support growing up, they had a relationship. As one of the few black children in her neighborhood, she faced insults, particularly over the fact that she was mixed race and her mom and sisters were white. She often got into fights, forming a combative attitude which she carried with her into the game of hockey. James excelled in sports from a young age and had a love of hockey, baseball, and synchronized swimming. Her mother wanted her to focus on swimming, as it had more opportunities for girls in the 70s, but James' passion for hockey was obvious from kindergarten. She would play in a boys' house league starting at the age of eight, and her mother had to threaten legal action against, as they were opposed to letting her join. Eventually, she was forbidden from playing, with the league's formal policy change due to too many complaints and jealousy from parents of boys in the league who were being overshadowed by a girl. The only other option for James at the time was a girls' league at the Annunciation, a Catholic organization in the Don Mills district. She was so talented that when she was 13 years old, she was placed on teams playing against women 16 years and older. The team was called the Saints. They were a senior team, the fourth highest level of women's hockey in the Toronto area at the time. During her time in high school, she was focused on hockey, but exposed to drugs and alcohol regularly and was always getting into fights. She paid little attention to the actual school part of school and almost dropped out. 
Thanks to a special vice principal who encouraged her to pay attention to her studies, she graduated from Overly High School and moved into Seneca College in Toronto. She struggled academically in her first year, mostly due to the fact that she was playing two sports at both college and community levels and was working a part-time job to help her family pay the bills. Seneca's hockey coach at the time, Lee Trempe, had several arguments with James before she began to take her studies seriously. James played both softball and hockey for Seneca Scouts. Though she always played forward in community hockey leagues, Coach Trempe converted her to defense so that she could always set up plays and incorporate her teammates into the offensive. Despite a change in position, she continued to lead the league in scoring the 1982-83, having scored 15 goals and 10 assists in an eight-game season. That year, she led both the softball team and the hockey team to silver medal wins and was MVP in hockey. She was also MVP the following year, when Seneca were the champions. Her scoring exploits lead a Toronto reporter to call her the Wayne Gretzky of women's hockey. She was Athlete of the Year for both 1974 and 1984 for the Ontario Colleges Athletic Association, and she set the record career goals of 80 and 128 points, which stood through to 1989 when the OCAA disbanded its hockey program due to lack of competing teams. Seneca College retired her jersey, number 8, in 2001, and she was inducted into the Seneca Varsity Hall of Fame in 1985 and in 2004 received the Seneca College Distinguished Alumni Award. James went on to play for various senior C hockey teams, including the Toronto Islanders, a Burlington team, and the Toronto Arrows. She led the Arrows to two national championships in 91 and 93. Continuing her career, she played for the Toronto Red Wings and the Newtonbrook Panthers before rejoining the Arrows in 97, which is where she was when the newly formed National Women's Hockey League was formed. She scored 38 goals and 55 points in the inaugural NWHL season and was named the MVP. The following season, she was named the best forward in the Western Division and was on the first-ever All-Star team. James also played for Team Canada at the international level, for which he played 50 games, scored 33 goals, and had 21 assists. James retired from competitive hockey in 2000. She has been called the first superstar of modern women's hockey and has been hailed as a pioneer who brought the women's game into the mainstream. James was one of the first three women to be inducted into the International Hockey Federation's Hall of Fame in 2021. She was named to the Order of Hockey in Canada by Hockey Canada in recognition for her career and contributions to the game in Canada. There's definitely no shortage of greatness in Canadian history, and we're glad to have been able to share the stories of these amazing women with all of you today. We already mentioned that Toronto was the first municipality in Canada to proclaim Black History Month in 1979 to honour the legacy of Black Canadians. This month provides an opportunity to celebrate and commemorate the legacy, history, and achievements of Black Canadians that have made and continue to make our city and country what it is today. Toronto's Black History Month proclamation says that February, as should every month, should be a time to recognize our shared responsibility to fight anti-Black racism and reaffirm our commitment to equal rights, opportunity, and freedom from discrimination in Toronto and across Canada. Black History Month is an opportunity to learn about the history of Black Canadians, to recognize the role they have played in building our city, 
and to understand the vital need to combat racism, discrimination, and inequality in our communities, partially through gaining a greater understanding of the discrimination and marginalization often faced by Black Canadians. Thanks for tuning in to today's episode, everyone, and we do hope that you found today's episode informative and entertaining. If you did like what you heard, please remember to like, follow, or subscribe to Mixed DNA Podcasts on whatever platform you're listening to. And also remember to leave a rating or write a review where applicable. Positive reviews and ratings, as well as followers, ensure that we're reaching as wide an audience as possible. Also remember to follow us on Facebook or Instagram at Mixed DNA Podcast, where every week we post information that helped us put together each week's episode. We post links, images, and quotes that we think are pretty interesting, and we think you will as well. Thanks again for listening, and you'll hear from us again next week. Bye, everyone. Bye.